Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Matt Brown Show. This is the Private Placement Perspective Series, where we are connecting you to a whole bunch of venture capital firms uh, and really talking about the world of, in, of venture investing and, and that sort of thing. Uh, with me on the line is the general partner of Creative Ventures, uh, VC Champ. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Matt. Thanks for having me. Uh, the privilege is all mine. So you based out in Oklahoma. It's a city I haven't Oakland. been to. Oakland, Oakland, sorry. Oakland, yeah. Oakland. City I haven't Oakland. been to. You know, Oklahoma, for me, it's, it's all the same, dude. <laughs> I haven't been there either. <laughs> uh, but it's been, uh, it's been, uh, it's great to have you here, man. It's been a bit, a bit of a process to get you here, but uh, nonetheless, we are here today. So for our viewers around the world, Champ, who haven't heard uh, about you and kind of how you got your start uh, in uh, the world of venture capital. Uh, why don't you give us the elevator pitch about Creative Ventures and, um, you know, give us the origin story to how you got involved in the space. Yeah, um, definitely. So uh, Creative is an early stage deep tech venture fund investing in three main themes, um, climate change, labor automation, and healthcare. Primarily looking for advanced technologies that can solve these um, global crises. And how we got started was about seven years ago, you know, at a time in the mobile revolution, um, sort of peaking over seven billion evaluations to private. Um, and, you know, we have like two forks um, going to the boot, right? Um, one, we could go into you know, doing B2B SaaS, you know, which is the gift Celine fund doing that right now. Or we could do something more, more interesting. And, you know, we, we picked deep tech, not because we love the technology per se, I mean, you know, office, uh, PhDs, advanced degrees in engineering and whatnot. Um, but because we saw these impeccable crises that needs to be solved and it just needs to be solved with, uh, with deep tech. Um, so we just can't use, we can't use software to solve everything, unfortunately. And that's how, that's how we are where we are today. So when you say deep tech, what does that mean for our viewers and audience who don't really know what that means? Yeah, the um, the two sentences I got is sort of like, you know, you can think of it as sci-fi tech in some way, right? Things that, you know, the Jetson uh, would probably have been probably seen a Jetson. Um, but really, it's, it's you know, um, technologies has been incubated for like 10, 15 years in the research labs um, that is about prime ready to be commercialized. So when we, make, we look for deep tech investment, the one key thing is really be able to distinguish which one is still in R&D. And which one is is prime for for commercialization? Uh, this thing, distinguishing features is that um, when 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 you're done with R and D, you should be able to you know with a bit of high, with a pretty high confidence estimate how much time and money you need to actually bring the product to market. Whereas if you're still in R and D phase, you don't know you don't know that because it hasn't worked yet. Yeah, got it. It's cool. So um, can you? Paint a picture for us a bit about your investment activity. Like how many of investments have you made in the deep tech space? What's the typical check size? Where does the rubber hit the road for you guys? Yeah, um, you know, we've made about like 50, 60 investments somewhere around there um, over the past seven years. Um, typical check size is half a million to a million. That's, you know, came out of our of first, um, first and second fund. Um, and then when we, when we hit our fund tree, we're probably going to look to ramp it up to about 3 million or so. Um, so yeah, that's just roughly the stats. All righty, cool. And, um, when it comes to the stages of deep tech startups that you're looking to invest in, um, are they revenue generating typically? Is that, you know, one of your key requirements? Are they pre-revenue? Do they have to be, um, in, you know, focused on specific industries or are you agnostic? 
Yeah, we, we don't need it to be. I mean, it, it really depends, right? And, you know, let me expand on like what deep tech is because I think that paints a better picture um, in the company. So, you know, in automation, it's essentially AI and robotics, right? This is pretty simple. In climate change, you know, this could be battery companies. It could be sustainable packaging. It could be alternative proteins. Um, uh, it could be, you know, you enhancement for, for ag tech um, and so on and so forth. So it's a variety and then on the healthcare side, um, we'll be looking at things like advanced drug manufacturings or, you know, diagnostic technologies, med tech, stuff like that. So there, there is a wide variety of things that we do look at. Um, and consequently, you're not going to expect like a med tech, you know, company or, or pre-FDA to have in revenue. Whereas, you know, you probably will expect, you know, a, an AI company to have some revenue when they talk to us. So it spans a little bit, but the key things that we look for is ability to preempt the product market fit, right? Because when, when we the say should be invested in is sort of like late seed, post seed kind of, kind of thing, um, seed to late seed. You don't want them to be at the A stage yet because otherwise then you're competing with, with other Series A firms. Um, and Series A is supposedly when you already found found the product market fit. So when you invest a stage earlier, you're looking for early signs of success. Um, and early signs that confirm the thesis for, for your investment, but you don't want it to be totally proven out because then, you know, theoretically it will be priced in and they'll, they'll be racing Series A. Mm, yeah, that's a great point. So what makes you guys different then? What, what do you want the world to know about your firm that makes you guys unique or special? Yeah, you know, I think the, the way we look at investments, um, typically when, when found, when, when funds look at investment, it's all about team, 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 right? And there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and I think it, it's, it works very well um, when you're investing in software, mainly because, you know, things doesn't work well in software. You can pivot, you know, you go back for a weekend, you know, come up with MVP, go, go out test in the market um, and do all of that. That doesn't work well in deep tech. You know, um, when you do the research for 10, 15 years, this, it is a solution that you've come up with. You can't pivot that well. Um, so what you need is to be very precise on the market. So what we do is we reverse engineer instead of starting with a team and then say, Hey, we invest in the right team. They'll figure out the market themselves. We, well, the way we do it is say, Hey, let's figure out the market. Then let's figure out a technology that we can invest in. Then, you know, let's find a team who can deliver the technology in a playbook. So the way we do this is essentially take out these trends, right? You know, labor automation. We'll look at for like different labor shortages. Um, and we ask ourselves, hey, where's the great labor shortage that needs to be automated? We'll list out all the jobs, understand, trying to understand which opportunities are automatable, and we'll look for investment in those areas. Mm-hmm. So um, a lot of talk about the economy right now as uh, Silicon Valley banks in the news today. <laughs> I mean, oh, my God. <laughs> When uh, SVP yeah. hits the hits the dirt, makes you wonder what's uh, what's going on there yeah. uh, in terms of investing. I know a lot of uh, funds kept their money with Silicon Valley Bank and startups, and now it all looks like it's gone up in smoke or about to be. Um, so um, that's a side side distraction to the question, which is, yeah, yeah. you know, it's like the and you know, it is funny enough. It is it's a great precursor because. This is actually the questions that I want to ask you now is around the role of the economy when you make decisions because it seems to me that it, there's uncertainty everywhere these days. And so with your general partner, Capon, do you care about the economy and how does the role of the macro economy impact how you approach deciding whether to cut a check or not? Yeah, um, as an early stage, uh, well, I mean, kind of separate this, I mean, there are obviously linkages um, between what's going on in the macro to like early stage, right? 
but obviously it's delayed, right? So from the public market to late stage, um, you know, buyouts probably like a quarter, right? And then from there, the growth is like, you know, six to nine months. It, whatever, you know, is happening downstream, it, it does, comes up to the upstreams, but there's a very big delay. When you get when you get to early stage, you know, to see, you know, it, you kind of beg to wonder like how much of these matters in the long term, right? Because when you invest in a company five, seven years, um, if their company is not durable enough to kind of go through the, the entire cycle, we shouldn't be investing to begin with. Granted, it's, it's not always going to be durable, right? That certain companies is going to do better in, you know, in certain, certain macroeconomic condition. When we think the way we think about it, it has to do with the way we construct a portfolio and not at the in, individual investment level. But what, what we would do, um, obviously is we might tilt certain way. So, you know, like, let's say, Hey, there's a great labor choice right now. Let's look for companies. Let's, let's look for automation companies. You know, that, you know, we, we think that there's certain regulations that's coming up like RAA, IRA and whatnot. You might preempt it you know, and try to invest in climate tech company before that. Um, so there, there are certain pieces that we try to bake in and we'll tilt the, uh, the equation one way or the other, but it wouldn't impact the, the way we look at individual companies. Uh, you know, um, and then again, you know, like short sure, desk capital crunches and whatnot. So in, in time of high uncertainty, you probably want them to raise more money, the less, right? There, there are some of those factors that changes the equation a little bit, but it wouldn't like entirely change the way we allocate. Yeah, it's very interesting. And you obviously talk to LPs. You've, you've, uh, you know, you'd have to be to have a fund at all. But obviously, this is a conversation that you have um, when you're wanting to, as you mentioned, raise your next fund. So, um, how does this this economic narrative impact? the LP's perspective on which funds to back or not. Yeah. And, you know, I, I'd say this is how I describe the world, right? 20, like from 2022 until now, essentially we're running hundred miles an hour. Suddenly we start spinning for no reason. And then the world, and then we stop spinning, but the world is still spinning around us. And now we're still kind of waiting for the world to stop spinning, even though we stop. Right. But people are still trying to get the bearing. So I've heard it from the LP anywhere from this is going to be the best petition in, you know, in ever, um, since, you know, the, the, the OA. And, you know, we're going to go and allocate as much as we can to we're holding 50% cash because this is not the bottom yet. And we're going to wait for the bottom. So it's a very big spectrum compared to like when we first started the fund, start raising from one and two. It's basically we're going up to the right. Yeah, and basically we're just looking for, for the best manager we can source. It's a very different conversation right now. And people are still trying to figure out. Um it, it you just sort of have to to deal with it. Even institution, because in for institution, there are people who basically would tell us, you know what? Um we we basically have to do nominative effect, but we're underfunded. So yeah, you know, we basically if we invest uh, in, in into bonds now into 10 year treasury. We'll get, we'll hit the, we'll hit the 4%, 5%, whatever we need to hit, right? But then, like, we'll hit the annual target, but because we're underfunded, we can't pull back on venture. So we're going to have to plow more into venture. We don't have a choice there. There are like these weird random scenario that's happening as well that, you know, you would think that, okay, they have to denominate effect. They would have to pull back, you know, from private. It's not necessarily the case. Um, yeah. Thank you for that. So when it comes to evaluating opportunities, um, 
you obviously, I would imagine, get pitched quite a lot, especially now. Um, and so I'm curious to understand, how do you find startups to invest in and what do, what factors go into you deciding to cut a check or not? Yeah. I mean, obviously, you know, network is a big, important thing, but strategically, we cultivate relationships um, with university, a lot of the leading university, um, different professors are known to kind of spin off companies. Um, by the way, show of us doing deep tech, it, basically, you, you need to know the source of the tech, right, which is um, university. So that, that's been helpful for us. Um, and then, you know, seeing companies applying for different government grants, we basically are the reviewer of these government grant agency, you know, DARPA, RPE, NSF and whatnot. So you kind of see companies kind of through that route and you've been talking to them, tracking them for years. Um as far as how we think about investment, right, it, it comes back to the thesis. It comes back to are they solving long-term secular problems? So, you know, for example, we wouldn't just look at companies that are trying to improve improve productivity for, for, for productivity's sake. Uh, what, you know, in, in my past life, uh, working for bigger corporations and doing technology sourcing, it, it, even if the problem is big, but if it's not changing in magnitudes, if it's not growing, you kind of got a numbing effect like, oh, you know, it's business as usual. It's fine to have these problems. Um, whereas, hey, if these problems are growing every day at an alarming rate, even if it's a small problem, people do pay attention. People do notice it. So that's what we look for is are there long-term secular trends in driving these problems? Not, not just, you know, in size, but the growth rate of the problem should be expanding, increasing, because that also corresponds to changing market size and, you know, the growth rate at which the company will be able to kind of ramp their revenue. So that, that's the number one thing that, that we look for. Um, then from there is essentially, hey, do they have, um, do they have enough technological advantage to kind of hold off competition for a couple of years? Because we, we just don't believe that. There might be a couple of companies in our portfolio, um, like 10%, maybe, that has very strong breakthrough. But it's even in deep tech, it's rare to actually find those. What we wanted is a couple of, is basically that disadvantage by them a couple of years until the competitor catch up. But by that time, they, we want us to be able to, we want them to be able to implement um, with a customer and get baked in. Um, similar to how you basically, if your companies buy Oracle and you know, Salesforce, you implement that, you're not going to get away from that for a long time because you have invested so much resource integrating, getting implemented, getting rolled out. It's a lot of work. So business lock-in is actually a much more durable long-term advantage than just purely tech. And then you can kind of do other things on top of that and get it more lock-in and stuff. But first order is get a couple of years. And then lock them up to business, long-term business contracts and just basically sheer pain of having to re-implement things. Um, so those are probably like the two main things that, that we look for. And then obviously after there's a team and, and other, um, you know, unit economics and other more standard stuff. But for us, it's really starting in a market and then looking at, you know, how, how well can the technology solve this problem and what economics come out of it. Got it. So where does it go wrong for you? So when you are being pitched by whoever it might yeah. be, where, where, are there commonalities in, so if you think about like the last, you know, 50 guys you said no to or girls you said no to, um, what is the commonality between them? Where does it go wrong for you? Yeah, I mean, like, you mean, why why don't we invest? Yeah, so kind like of, when, right? when a startup's presenting their pitch to you, where does it go wrong typically? 
Yeah. Um, like the biggest common thread uh, is the, you know, it, it doesn't fit our thesis, right? We, we have a very defined thesis in, in terms of what we look for. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give you, and, and because of that thesis, and when we do the research, we'll have like specific investment criteria depending on whether we invest in um, concrete automation or, you know, um, or advanced draft manufacturing company. Those those would be very different investment criteria in terms of what we look for. Um, so we do get that specific in terms of those vertical and those focus areas. Um, but you know, t- typically it's a very it's a very common thing where, especially for deep tech, where people don't think that deeply about the market and the customers and who they are. Um, but then if, if you know, a lot of founders are basically get coached around that. Um, but the the thing that there's one step. One, one step into the market issue, right, is the market structure. Um, because then, you know, if you ask them, all right, yeah, you're trying to sell to, you know, so-and-so um, segment, but like, who do you actually sell to? You know, what's their level? What's their approval budget? Um, who used the product? You know, who, who buys the product? Who used the product? Who benefits from the product? Because there could be three different things. Uh, three, three different people in the healthcare in, in, in system, for example. You have payers, you have Pharma, you have um, patients, you have doctors, you have nurses, you have hospital administrator. All these incentives have to align. And you need to actually understand um, the ecosystem very well, right? Um, so, and then, you know, like, I'm just going to use healthcare because it's the most complex thing ever. Um, then from there, you also have to use, you know, understand, you know, the, the FDA, the different university hospital, the different from, you know, um, from other kind of hospital systems. And then you start to kind of like chart out, oh, you know, getting that product to market goes through so many different stakeholders and everyone has to win in order for this to actually see the light. And that's when people don't have a good answer for. Um, and it becomes, you know, and it becomes like, go back and figure this thing out and come back, talk to us when you figure it out. Mm. But yeah. yeah, especially health, anything in the healthcare space, especially hardware is a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, it's hard because in this system, is, to be honest, is really fuck up. But um, <laughs> yeah, you have yeah, you can have the most amazing things, and if people, if one person doesn't benefit from it, then they're just not going to use it, and so you kind of get stuck, you know, um, with that. Yeah, that's cool, um, champ. Listen, when you think about your biggest success and failure when making venture investments, what would you say has made the difference? The biggest success and failure and what makes the difference. No, that's, as that's a very interesting. Um, yeah, it's, it's a very interesting question. It, it does comes back to the team, right? And it's not that the team is, is like, ama- I mean, obviously it helps, but the team is amazing. But I think that the, the ability for the founder to have a very frank and open conversation goes a very long way, right? Because, you know, let's face it, founders are not, are not, they're not superhuman. I mean, they're super, they are superhuman, but they're not. There's certain things that it's just not going to be good at. How, how receptive are they at actually listening to that would, would determine what people tell them. Right. Because it's sort of not, it's not also not easy for VC to kind of walk up to them and say, Hey, you kind of suck at X, Y, and C. Right. Because you want to maintain a relationship. 
But the more open and receptive they are, the more suggestible they are, the more likely they're going to be able to have, we're going to be able to have that frank conversation with them. Cause you know, for every 10 founder they see, you can see like a thousand of them. Right. So we have a lot of data points and be able to have that conversation with them to point out, Hey, you know what? You, you can tell the story, right? It's not the issue when you fundraise, but the mindset when you tell the story. Is different. The energy, the persona is different. You know, it doesn't feel larger than life. And having that deeper conversation with them, because, you know, a lot of our founders are more PhDs, engineers and stuff. It's a softer issue. And sometimes it is, it attacks the ego, right? What do you mean? Like, I'm not inspiring leader. You know, I'm not an inspiring founder. I'm like, no, I'm not saying that. But, you know, it, it, the way you come across it, it's just, it, it's, it doesn't feel larger than life. There's not that excitement. And these like difficult thing uh, are difficult to even to talk to, right? Um, you know, when they're about to like expand and scale the company and they have no basis of what their culture and values are. And we already know, oh my God, you're going to hire the wrong people because you don't really know what commonality values that you look for. And you're going to go from like 20 to like 80 people in the next six months. It's worth a paper disaster. Um but, you know, the receptiveness of the founder will determine how well they can actually avoid this pitfall. And if it's not just between the VC and the founder, it's the founder and other people. So we're fine if the founder are receptive to someone else, as long as there's someone else who's going to tell them that, hey, they're fucking up and all about the fuck up and, and, you know, basically figure a way to avoid it. We're fine with that. Mm-hmm. It's the founders who actively want to be right all the time. And want to show that they know something. Usually, that's as that's difficult to push in the right direction, and it doesn't end well. Usually, yeah, definitely, not. it won't. It's impossible. <laughs> like you actually have to have a shared set of values. I would say, you know, at least you know you need to be adaptable to like other people's perspectives because at the end of the day i mean it takes two people at a dance or party right like you can't just have the investor or you as an example thinking one thing in the investee or the issuer thinking something else entirely and not being able to kind of meet in the middle uh, that always creates conflict and and, and a terrible investment uh, opportunity for yeah. both of you yeah definitely definitely so champ what's one piece of advice you would like to give a founder when it comes to raising venture capital today yeah the, the word today is what makes it very difficult. I mean, as we okay, just tomorrow, got tomorrow, tomorrow, make it tomorrow. Today, it's like, <laughs> today is like apocalyptic day almost. Just, just pick oh. a piece of advice. Let's go for it. <laughs> yeah, um, you don't have to have the answer for everything, right? Make it a conversation. Um, I, I think that you know, a VC is not expect you to have like figure everything out, right? It, it's impossible, um, but. You know, having intelligent thoughts around it, be able to kind of bounce and, and say, yeah, you know, we're considering, you know, let's say, you know, there's a question, um, once you go, go to market, right? Um, this is what we think is, is the best one. Um, but we're also considering this, this, but this is our main hypothesis. We, the answer is we don't know, but this is what we're going to try. And these are the priorities. If you have that, that's fine too. You're not going to figure everything out. You're not going to know this will work 100% for sure. That level of certainty is is cockiness. And if you know that you already have product market fit, right? Um, You should have a sense of skepticism, but you should have a clear hypothesis why this would be a good hypothesis. 
and be able to, you know, to, uh, to convince um, the, the VC that this is what, this is work backing, but if it doesn't work, this is when we will know it doesn't work. And this is how we're going to pivot and, and go on next. So being, it's almost like designing experiment, right? You want to know what it is you're, you're going you're gonna to test, but you kind of want to know the result in a time frame that these things are going to come to fruition, especially these days when, when money is not free anymore, um, when burn is, is very limited. You want to know within what time frame are you before you pull the plug and, and figure something out. And most people do not have that in their mind. Most people kind of know, all right, we're going to do this thing. But like, how long would it take to kind of like to know this? We don't know. Oh, like, then how much money are you going to raise? We don't know. A year and a half, two years, because everyone else does that. Well, maybe it makes sense for you. Maybe it doesn't. Um, especially in these days, because there are bridges, right? You need to think about bridges. Um, when you raise a, raise a bridge round, it's, it's different from raising a full round. It's different from between racing the A and the B. Right. So ha- having that thoughts in mind and having those different options and priorities are super, super important. And then have a conversation with a VC, talk to them, bounce. So don't, don't just try to sell it. Have that conversation, genuine conversation, because that's a conversation that hopefully you will have post investment. Right. Yeah. That's awesome advice. Cool. We're going to take a quick break, guys, and we'll be back. The Matt Brown Show is presented by Carafin, an investment bank that offers and supports direct private investments in U.S. operating companies. Over the past 20 years, investors have placed over $1.2 billion of private debt and equity in more than 100 companies through Carafin and its affiliates. Carafin leverages technology to empower its community of investors to deploy their capital far more efficiently than ever before and connects their community of engaged investors with worthy companies. Invest portions of your portfolio in direct private investments today. Visit carafin.com forward slash Matt Brown show for more. And we're back. So champ, I'd love to talk to you about capital structures. Um, You've cut quite a few checks over the last uh, couple of years. So do you have a preferred or most common type of capital structure when making an investment? Do you, you know, is it safe note for pre-revenue convertible notes or any kind of other, you know, participating preferred structures that you work with? Where does the rubber hit the road for you? Yeah, ideally it'd be like an equity round because then we can kind of like flesh things out, out um, and then you'll kind of see things better. Um, when you have a safe round, especially like if it's like sort of rolling safe, it's, it's difficult to kind of estimate your actual um, ownerships and, and other kind of stuff. Um, not, not that we care that deeply about ownership for various reasons, but, um, you know, it, it does helps to kind of, to, to have that flesh, those flesh out. But, you know, the other things like the bond structures, um, you know, it's getting an understanding sort of like the, um, what, what the option pools are going to be and all of that. It's just cleaner. And, you know, even as long as, as safe has been around, it's not, it, there hasn't been like so too much cases of like, you know, what it's like. We go to litigations and whatnot. In the worst case scenarios, what happened in those realms? Um, it's an easy, quick way to close the round. But you know, for us, we, we prefer to lead the round, so we don't mind um, actually like doing the work and, and pushing it and getting the right co-investor and everything. 
Um, so that would be our strong preference, but then it depends on what kind of round, right? If you're just like doing a small bridge round, yeah, like 2 million, whatever. Mm. Um, and then it, it doesn't matter to kind of like do the whole equity thing. Um, but you know, in, in, in terms of an actual round, right. If you want to deal, then yeah, equity is, is, is our preferred method. So how do you price an equity round then? That's a million dollar question. Yeah, <laughs> I know. You just give me a million <laughs> dollar answer. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. That's it's, it's a great like the 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 real the real question is is comp base is what we what we see in the market, and the startup has to think that you're not just it's not about your company alone. It's, it's just like anything else. It's your company related to others. Like just as a VC fund, it's not just how well how well you do. It's how well you do related to other people. So from investment, you have amazing companies, but you know the price is just really, really not great compared to other five options you see. It does influence, right? It doesn't mean we want to invest. It just means that our expectation would be different um, because there are you know other opportunities that we also see that we could put the money into. Um, so it does kind of follows that, but you know there are other consideration, right? Um, um, so the way the way we think about this is first, how much money do they actually need to actually execute the milestone? That, that's the most important thing. You don't want to bump the price down or up and then change it, and then it changes you know the the amount of money that they, that they can raise, and then they're not going to get to the milestone. That's just first to pay for disaster. Um, but so once you figure out the amount of cash, then we look at you know sort of the dilutions. Um, across the board and kind of ask yourself, hey, what's acceptable here relative to obviously that attractions, what we're seeing in the market, you know, different comps and whatnot. Um, and you kind of go from there, right? So it's, 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 it's a delicate matter, but price is one thing, right? Um, option pool is another thing. We care a lot about option pools, um, which is somewhat, I mean, you can think about effective valuation you know, when you bake in the option pool. Um, so, um, we want to make sure that not only, not only are the founders are like getting, getting diluted fairly and, and in, in a, um, in a, in a way that they can accept it, um, that there's also enough options to kind of incentivize management, other management team hires and whatnot, um, as well. Um, then from there, you know, that there's other consideration, liquidity preference, um, ratchets, um, uh, what else? Board seats and stuff like that. So it's not evaluation is one piece. Maybe it's like four to sixty percent of the piece, but it's not the whole thing, right? So it, other stuff are just as important. It's also the terms, I suppose. That's that's really yeah, what you're getting across, right? It's it's cool. You exactly. that X, but what what else goes along with that? Exactly, exactly. You never want to negotiate anything like in isolation. Yeah, right. Gotcha. It's a package that matters. Mm-hmm. And yeah. when it comes to exits, how do you evaluate and prioritize an exit opportunity? So, for instance, let's just say Startup Nine gets uh, an offer to acquire. What role do you play in that? And and walk us through how you approach an exit opportunity. Yeah, um, the, the question the question that we ask is what why is similar would be first invest why now right why why do we exit now right is this the right time to to exit Right. If if it if it if it is, then you know, and, and if it's been pre-planned, right? And we, we got the term sheet because this is kind of like thoughtful, intentional thing that we've been driving towards, then sure, because we expected it. But when it's sort of a random term sheet coming out of nowhere, 
Yes, it's not usual that we got a pleasant surprise, right? It, it means that, oh, you know, we might actually be onto something and they don't want us to keep going because it gets more expensive. That's why they want to do it now. That, that That's sort of like the distinction. Um, but answering the why now exit question is, is important because then it dictates everything else. It dictates like, should we, should we do it? Should we not? What's the price? What's the potential? You know, um, and then we can kind of think about, all right, if we don't exit now, like what's the path forward? How long would it take? Um, and that's sort of from a fiduciary board member kind of, kind of hat, right? But then from a VC hat, it's a different hat because then you have to look at the life of the fund. Um, you know, like is this seven year or is it 12 year? And if it's 12 year, oh, it changes things, right? Um, the hard part really, you know, because we serve on a lot of board is, is is bearing those two hats because sometimes, you know, what's good for the fund is not, what's not good for the company. Uh, the fiduci- fiduciary is, is is important in that case. You know, I'm not going to say like any VC is human being. We're going to get influenced by our other hat, our non-board hat, right? Um, but from a business first standpoint, the why now is, is the thing that we ask all the time. Hmm. I, I, that's a really great point because I think timing is so important because oftentimes what's a deal today won't be a deal tomorrow. But I hear you sometimes, you know, acquirers they say, Hey, we're interested in acquiring you, but they just want to see what you built, but they don't actually have any serious intention behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And t- typically, you know, like these conversation doesn't come out of the blue, right? Let's say like a med tech company, there's like a handful company who acquire right in that particular space. And typically they've talked to each other for like years, you know, sometimes even before we even meet the company. Um, so they, they do have that preliminary information, but you know, it could be that they want more, they want to dig more into it. I don't know if they, they've come across the case where they're outright trying to like, you know, try to understand a trade secret and run. All right. That, that's not as usual. Um, yeah. Mm, I hear you. So, um, Let's talk about uh, the the kind of future here for a moment. So um, when you think about venture capital, what keeps you up at night currently with your general partner hat on? Is it the performance of the portfolio? Is it getting returns, uh, an, an appropriate return for your LPs? What, uh, what keeps you up at night? Yeah, um, I'd say it's to make sure that the company doesn't get short-sighted because of the pressure of, of you know, the cash crunch. It, you know, we, we don't want a company to be in a slow debt kind, kind of mode um, where, yeah, they, they're doing it, they're kind of burden stuff, and they're basically, they're basically never going to recover, right? This is also as good as death. It's just a slow debt. It's just even more painful debt. Um, so you know, balancing that, how do we balance? All right, let's make sure that, you're still taking some level of risk. It's an intelligent risk. It's going to set you up, you know, for success. You still are growing. You're going to burn. And, you know, we're going to need to have some, some assumption of when the capital market is going to resume to some shade of normalcy, right? Because it, the, the reality is we do have 300 billion in dry powder. It has to go somewhere unless the pension and endowment of the world is hard, you know, some wealth funds are defaulting, right? Which I think is a pretty rare case that, that that's going to happen. Um, uh, so let's make that assumption and let's take the risk based on that assumption. And, you know, we can kind of like vary things a little bit. Um, 
uh, but what we, what we don't want to be, hey, you know, we're not going to grow at all because we're just going to serve, kind of conserve cash. Well, if you're not going to grow at all, then how are you going to show the matrix that, you know, there's this, you know, fast growing business? Then even when the capital market resume, you basically lost that chance to, to raise your series A. Then it's not any good either, right? And then you're going to start ramping up. Then you realize you have even have, you have even less money to do that than you did six months ago. Well, that's also not good. So let's take the risk. Um, you know, uh, let's talk to your point, talk to your investors what they're willing to pony up if they they're growing, they're burning, and the the market has not yet resumed. You know, how how long can we continue to bridge that? Mm, yeah, that's a great point. And when you think about the future, let's just say fast forward another ten years, how do you see the role of venture capital evolving, and what do you think its impacts will be on startups? That's a good question. You know, we've talked so much about how VC model has never evolved for the past like 40 years. Frankly, I don't see a force that will make it change, right? I mean, you know, there's, there's more capital coming in over the past 10 years, right? So that has spurred up innovation in, in so many different ways. Um, yeah, and there, I think the, the most recent things in a couple of years is, is a big push in terms of diversity and ESG and, and all of that from the LP. It, it hasn't made that meaningful impact. I think in, in many ways, as much as we see, like think of ourselves as, hey, if it's spurring innovation, kind of a bit of a dinosaur sticking to the same model, right? And that people obviously trying to like out-innovate the model and everything, but the big check still goes to, you know, the old model, right? The 220, the traditional close-end funds. Then, yeah, you have Sequoia to basically go, you know, um, the evergreen model and everything. And that that's changing a little bit. Um, there, there will be more, I believe that there will be more intermingle between hedge funds and VC fund, where VC fund become hedge fund, hedge fund become VC private funds and stuff. I, I think that's a trend that's going to keep going, especially on the software side where you know it's sort sort of starting to commoditize right in a way where people yeah now now they start to know how to do software investment more and more um, and then you see um tiger of the world jumping in um so so that will continue to happen um you continue to see more niches of of vc coming up on the early stage because that's the only way to survive is to specialize not generalize um uh, but short of that i don't know if there are other big impending forces that's going to sh- completely changed the way we do things um, compared to the way we're doing it today. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> just by the way, <laughs> there's a book I'm reading called uh, VC in American History. And mm. I don't know if you've read it, but it's like uh, that, that actually the venture capital industry hasn't really changed since the whaling industry in the yeah. uh, in the 19 or the 1800s. It's literally the same. It's just to call different things, different contexts, right. but otherwise structurally it's the same. Right. Yeah, and the question is like, what's so broken about it that the industry decided to change? Right. Sure, you know, like six percent of the money you go to, like you know, white guy, blonde hair, blue eye from Stanford, Harvard, right? So it, it's not great. I'm not saying that's great, but fundamentally, it hasn't broken from an economics point of view, right? Just still, you know, VC funds are still generating enough return, so that garner more and more capital from the LP. So until that that economics break, there's no real economic pressure to change. And it's difficult for people to 
just change it because, oh, you know, it's good for the world, right? I mean, if that's the case, we wouldn't have climate crisis. So <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be a whole lot of other issues that we have in, in the world if that were the case. Um, it's it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. Yeah. Let's wrap this up, uh, champ. So um, if, if I could give you the keys to the Matt Brown show time machine and you could go back to yourself on day one of this whole venture capital you know, journey that you've been on, what advice would you give yourself about venture investing? Oh, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to talk, don't do it. It is so fucking hard. <laughs> I mean, I'm serious. I tell everyone this thing. But right? if, if I had known on the first day how hard it would be, I'd say like, don't do it. Oh um, no, I mean it's partly a joke, right? Um, yeah. What I'd probably say is it will be hard. It'll be fine. We keep pushing. You'll figure it out. And that's the advice I give to all the entrepreneur. It's going to be way harder than you whatever you think now. It's going to be like ten times harder. You just don't know it yet. But you know what? It'll be completely okay because as it gets exponentially harder, you also have to get have to get exponentially better it's a forcing function you either grow or you, you basically die um and it's going to be a wonderful experience no matter where which, which side you end because you're going to learn so much and grow so much and you're going to appreciate all those pains so much but just know it's going to be painful and it'll be completely okay <laughs> <laughs> and on that bombshell it's time to end champ uh i dig your vibe man you're a great guy um, and uh, I, I love what you guys are doing in the deep tech niche around venture investing. So congrats on all your success so far and exciting to see where you guys are going to go in the future. Thank you, man. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. Anytime. Yeah,